Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Kobe and I chat with guest Jens Grot, Director of Research and Formal Security at Affinity, previously a professor at the Department of Computer Science, UCL. Jens Grot is a leading ZK researcher and is the person behind a number of advances in the field. We chat about his earlier career, the cryptographic problems he tackled in his research, how he solved these, the results of this work, as well as his move from research into industry and what he works on today. Before we kick off, I just want to highlight the ZK link tree. There you can find links to all of our channels, including the ZK Jobs Board, the ZK Community Board, and also the ZK Hack Discord. If you're looking to learn more about ZK Tech, keep an eye on that space. We have a lot of really cool things coming this summer as well as into the fall. So if you're looking to jump in, this might be a great place to start. I've added the link in the show notes. Hope to see you in our channels. Now, I want to invite Tanya to share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Anoma. Anoma is a set of protocols that enable self-sovereign coordination. Their unique architecture facilitates efficiently the simplest forms of economic coordination, such as two parties transferring an asset to each other, as well as more sophisticated ones like an asset-agnostic bartering system involving multiple parties without direct coincidence of wants, or even more complex ones such as N-Party, collective commitments to solve multipolar traps, where an interaction can be performed with an adjustable zero-knowledge privacy. Anoma's first fractal instance, Namada, is planned for later in 2022, and it focuses on enabling shielded transfers for any assets with a few-second transaction latency and near-zero fees. Visit anoma.net for more information. So thanks again, Anoma. Now here is Anna and Kobe's interview with Jens Grot. Today, I'm very excited to introduce our guest, Jens Grot. He's the Director of Research and Formal Security at Definity. He's previously a professor at the Department of Computer Science at UCL. Welcome to the show, Jens. Thanks, Anna. And very nice to be here. For today's episode, Kobe is also joining me as a co-host. Hi, Kobe. Hello. So I think before we start in, I want to talk about your name, Jens, because I think a lot of people are will be very familiar with the work that you've done, but maybe not the way that I just pronounced your last name. We just recently learned on an episode that we have been pronouncing your name wrong all of these years. The term that we're familiar with would be Groth16, a very important proving system that's used by many projects. But we just learned that it's actually pronounced Groth and maybe even like Groth16. That's how I've started to use it since then. But I want to ask you what you make of this. Yeah, yeah. I'm also mispronouncing my own name, right? So, so I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Danish. Uh, so my name is Jens Groth. Um, mm-hmm. and, but, but especially in English speakers find that very difficult to to pronounce. And and I've given up, right? And I just say Groth as well. And <laughs> uh, whenever I talk about my own works, so, so I guess that's all like. Uh, I still pronounce my own name when I just introduce myself as as, as God, but uh, when I refer to my scientific works, I tend to, to say Graf just so everybody's on the same page. Everyone can say it. I think it's really important for our community to know that we've been saying it wrong. I can't on, on now, and because Mary actually says grot when she pronounces it, now I do to as well. So, <laughs> I'm <laughs> at still least practicing. <laughs> but anyway, cool. So why don't we hear a little bit more about you and your background? What led you also to this really important work? I'm very excited to dig in. So it started at the University of Aarhus when I was an undergraduate student. I was studying maths and I kind of uh, got a little fed up with the abstraction that was there. And I wanted to do something applied. And cryptography was sort of an opportunity to do applied maths. Um, so I took some courses in cryptography. I really liked it. I decided to write my master thesis in cryptography. And, and that's sort of how I got into cryptography. Nice. What was the main topic in cryptography at that time? What were people excited about or worried about? Yeah, I think 
I think I've seen a lot of your early work was actually around voting in cryptography, right? Right, yeah. So after my master thesis, I sort of got into an, doing an industrial PhD. So I was working with a company, Cryptomathic, and they had a project on, on voting. So that's sort of how I got started on, on doing research. And in voting uh, at that time, it would take a, a lot of time, actually. So, so there are these voting systems and you have to, they're, they're very good at tallying up votes. They're based on homomorphic encryption. So you can sort of like submit your votes in encrypted form, right? So they're kept private and then you can tally them up and you can use a threshold decryption to get out the result of the election, right? Um, but when you do that, you know, there's nothing that prevents a voter from submitting, you know, uh, a thousand votes on a candidate, right? And that's essentially stuffing the ballot box. So you want to prevent that. And in order to prevent that, you can ask the voter to submit a, a zero knowledge proof together with the vote that they have voted basically in a valid way, right? So it doesn't reveal which candidate they voted for, but it does ensure that they can only submit a valid vote. And at that time, that was a process. I mean, if you had like a large election with a lot of candidates, right, then that could take up to minutes on, on a, a browser at that time, right, to create that vote and, and, and submit it, right? So the bottleneck was really the zero-knowledge proof and especially the time it took to prove that you have submitted a correct vote. So, so I kind of got into zero-knowledge proof because I wanted to, to optimize that step for, for the voter. Mm. Was zero knowledge proofs at the time that you were doing it, were they a key topic in generally like in cryptography or was the focus on something else at that time? I, I feel it's always been a key topic from an academic perspective, right? People have been interested in, in zero knowledge proofs. And, and I think you also have like concrete things people do with zero knowledge proof, like Schnorr signatures is essentially a zero knowledge proof, right? So, so it's also something that has really, you know, uh, some a practical dim dimension to it. I'm not sure it was so like the hottest topic at, at that time, right? So uh, at that time, it was so like a few years after um, uh, kramer shoop encryption came out, right? So until then, you didn't really have like efficient, provable, uh, chosen cipher text attack secure encryption, right? And that was a big result at, at that time. Uh, and actually something I wrote my, my master thesis on, uh, ah. on chosen cipher text attack security. Was post-quantum an issue then? Were people already sort of looking to the future as something to work on or think about? I, th I think not. Not that I recall. I mean, uh, basically, most of my cryptographic career, I've just been working with number theoretic based uh, primitives, right? And, and not really been thinking much much about post-quantum security. So I think that's some awareness that, I mean, it, it may have been so like in the background, I know that people were doing so like both quantum cryptography and post-quantum <laughs> secure cryptography also back then, right? But, but it was certainly much less of an, an issue. Yeah. I think like maybe, maybe if we're going back to the topic of um, the zero-knowledge proofs and that era, um, maybe it's also fair to say that at that time, zero knowledge proofs that were created for, for very specific use cases. So if you look at voting, it would be for something extremely concrete and small and very different from what we have today for, let's say, generic programs. So right, yeah. at least I think that was even less looked at back then. Is that correct? So there has been works that looked at also at, at generic programs, right? So not so much programs, right? I mean, the model has typically been, been that you have a, a circuit, right? Either a, a Boolean circuit or maybe an arithmetic circuit, right? If you were really fancy, right? And, and people did not think much about so like how to translate, say, a program execution into a circuit and, and the cost inv involved in that, right? So that was sort of like the model because it's NP complete, right? And it's you know, I think at least for, for arithmetic circuits, it also relates somewhat to cryptographic operations you could do in cyclic groups, right? It made, it made sense, right? Um, so there were papers that sort of like did uh, general proofs that, you know, said you could prove that an arithmetic circuit is, is satisfied, right? And, and that sort of like got that in down to sort of like a linear number of, of uh, group operation in, in, in cost. Going back to your story, so you kind of talked about like some of this initial work, which was in ZK, which was very early. I, it seems like it was quite early in the field. Were there many ZK researchers at that point? 
I don't think there were people that would really identify as purely ZK researchers, right? Okay. It was more like something you would pick up along with other things that you were doing. Ah, interesting. But what was your next step after that? So where did you kind of go after that initial project? So, so I did, I mean, I did quite a lot of work on, on zero-knowledge proofs in, in voting, right? So there's both the, the paradigm of, of doing uh, voting based on homomorphic encryption and telling encrypted ballots. Um, so I did had several papers that optimized that and, and also sort of used different techniques that also like typically based on, on groups with a hidden uh, order. Uh, so you can sort of like also do some integer uh, proofs around that. Um, there were some, some nice papers by Helga Lipman that sort of like initiated that kind of direction and sort of like used sort of very clever tricks with, uh, you know, Lagrange four-square theorem and sort of like prime visibility and, and things to prove that you had something that was in a particular set. So that was sort of one area I was exploring. And then there's another voting paradigm uh, based on mixed nets. So that could be used both for voting, but also for anonymous uh, communication. Uh, so I also started looking at, at mixed nets and, and did quite a lot of work in, in that area. And then I had sort of like a, a, some strategic thinking about like I was thinking, well, I'm good at zero knowledge proofs. You know, where else can I use that? So I also did some work on uh, group signatures because they also rely on, on zero knowledge proofs to sort of like glue everything together. So that was sort of the, the early days of, of working with uh, zero knowledge, which which all were sort of like application driven, right? That there was some some direct uh, application I had in mind when I was trying to optimize. And I always liked optimizing things. So a lot of this was like in squeezing out the last piece of performance in these zero knowledge proofs. And then after that, uh, I went after my PhD, I went to do a, a postdoc at UCLA. Uh, that's sort of where uh, working with Rafael Ostrovsky and Amit Sahai that I got into so like uh, using pairings for uh, zero knowledge proofs. If we're talking about mixed nets and uh, the techniques that are used in both mixed nets and voting, there is this topic of uh, shuffle arguments, right? Yeah. Um, so maybe it would be nice to describe what it is and what difference have you made there? So the idea is that you you have a, a bunch of people they want to say publish some 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 message but they want to be anonymous right so so you have some servers that will help them and the idea is that you everybody encrypts their message sends that to the first server the server then picks a random permutations and so like permutes these ciphertext and if you use for instance, an encryption scheme that's homomorphic, then the server can also re-randomize those ciphertexts. So you cannot so like see from the input ciphertext which ones match the output ciphertext, right? So now this server sends out a bunch of ciphertexts that have these encrypted messages, right? But nobody can anymore see that connection. And you could pass that through multiple servers in, in sequence, right? To make sure that even if one of the servers is so like curious about who submitted which message, then it doesn't know either because some other server also put in a, a random permutation. And it's clear that, you know, if, if the servers can do, do anything, then they might not re-randomize at all, right? They could do something else. They could substitute in new ciphertexts. Uh, they could also try to sort of like somehow mark the message so they can later see who was it that submitted it, right? So, so there you want, again, some sort of check that the server's actually acting honestly. That check can be then done with zero-knowledge proofs. So the idea is then that each server will not only do the permutation and, and the re-encryption of, of the ciphertext, so that what is called a shuffle, right? But it will also prove that it has done a correct shuffle. Yeah. And I think that one of the works that were pretty influential in that respect was with uh, Stephanie Bayer, right? Uh, yeah. That you had zero knowledge argument for correctness of a shuffle. And I think it's still quite being used today, right? Like it's it's also maybe one of the basis of existing zero knowledge, general zero knowledge schemes today, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So Stephanie was um, the first PhD student I had, right? And we were working on, on, on mixed nets among other things. Uh, and, and indeed we had this paper and uh, what was nice about that paper was, I mean, it's sort of like 
optimized several things, right? So it had sort of like a, a reasonable prover complexity, it has a reasonable verify complexity, right? But then it was also sublinear in communication. So it was a square root cost in, in so so basically what it means is that you know, if you think, I mean, you have to communicate the shuffle anyway, right? You have to say these are the new output ciphertext, right? Um, so you will, if you have n ciphertext, right, then when you make a shuffle, you output n new ciphertext, right? But then the proof can be much smaller than that, right? So in terms of communication, you're now you, you're saying that, you know, there's no cost at all, essentially, for this. Your knowledge proof and communicating that, right, the, the, the cost is borne mainly by just the shuffle itself, which is unavoidable. That first PhD student and that work, was that when you were at UCLA still? So that was uh, at, at uh, UCL. I was not, okay. um, so like I suppose that you're not directly permitted to advise PhD students and you don't have like sufficient time to, to do that either. But uh, I was working with some of uh, Mitz and, and, and Rafi's uh, students at, at UCLA. But let's talk about that move over to UCL. You became a professor at UCL. Uh, what made you choose to do it there? Oh, so that was sort of like for family reasons. So, so we okay. wanted to move to Europe. We wanted to be in an English-speaking country. Uh, and I knew some of the, the people at, at UCL. So that's sort of how, how that, that got set up. It, was that already a center for this kind of work? Like, I know that, like, Leuven is, like, a center for cryptography and stuff, but, it, like, UCL, I now know a few people that are there, but was it already the case at the time? So there were some, some good cryptographers at, at, at UCL. Uh, so at that time, it was Helga Littner and Niklas and Ibu Desmet that were cryptographers there. It's sort of, like, changed over time who, who's, who's in the group, right? So uh, and it should be said that at, at that time, it was also... Outside of London, the idea was that uh, UCL wanted to do industrial collaboration, collaboration with British Telecom, which had an, a research center in, in Ipswich. So it was a little also remote from the university. And eventually the university found out that that was not the right strategy and moved all of us back to, to London. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk about the work that you did while you were there. I mean, this mm -hmm. is the work that sort of leads to some of the most famous work that a lot of people in our space are very familiar with. What were the topics that you started in on there? I mean, we know that at some point trusted setups became like a big theme, but yeah, where where was your starting point on that sort of line of research? Right. I think for, for all research, right, you have to th think that it doesn't really depend that much on the institution. It's more like a lot of it takes a long time to, you know, come to fruition and so like have some ideas in your the back of your head, right? So, so I, I do think of this as sort of like a continuous process from, you know, I mean, as a PhD student, I was thinking about zero knowledge proof. I came to UCLA, I started thinking about some different types of zero knowledge proofs with people there, right? I came to UCL and there was some, still some of those ideas that were coming to, to fruition. So, so, so one example of, of that, I guess, so, so the first um, pairing-based SNARK, right, which sort of gave, uh, got us uh, sublinear uh, communication complexity, so you could get down to, to constant uh, number of, of group elements to, to prove a, a statement, right, it was something that I published in, in 2010, I think, at, um, but it was something that I already had some ideas of for, for that early on while I was at UCLA, right? So it's sort of like work that came from there and then sort of like, you know, was, was published right I was at, at UCL. And um, wh where does the um, the work with um, Amit Sahai come in? That was something that I often see as, uh, you know, a celebrated topic and the uh, proving system for bilinear equations and... What what was that about? I remember reading that it was created because general NP computations seem to be too expensive. So what what was done here? Right. So so it started with a, a paper I had with Amit Sahai and Rafael Ostrovsky, um, which was essentially doing uh, non-interactive zero knowledge proofs based on on pairings. In this case, it was over groups of composite order, right? Uh, and I see that as sort of like the starting point that realized you could use uh, Bonego and, and Nissim encryption techniques and so like use ideas from that paper to build non-interactive zero knowledge 
uh, approves, right? It, the, the pairing sort of like gives you a multiplication in the exponent, and that sort of like allows you to do general proofs. And at that point, we were really thinking about Boolean circuit satisfiability, right? And you get sort of like a linear number of group elements per, per gate in that uh, Boolean circuit. And then it's sort of like natural when, when you have those kind of problems, you think about, okay, how can I extend that? How can I generalize that, right? So one uh, direction was, okay, can you do this over prime order groups, right? Um, and, and it turned out that you could that um, do that, right? And that was also driven by a question of, so we know that you cannot do just like non-interactive zero-knowledge proof without any sort of setup. You need something that sort of like allows you to, to simulate, but you can actually do that for uh, non-interactive witness indistinguishability, right? So if you give a weaker privacy guarantee, then you can do that. And, and for that, you couldn't really use composite order groups, right? Because then somebody needs to know the factorization and then things break down. So that was also a motivation for using prime order groups. Um, so that was sort of like an, a next step, right? And then, and then after that, it was sort of like a question, okay, but, you know, if you want to apply this in practice, right, then... Maybe you don't want to go through uh, an NP re complete reduction, right, of whatever you're trying to prove because that's expensive, right? So, um, so it was sort of natural to think about, okay, but what if we have something more concrete? Um, so there were a couple of papers there. Um, so I had one one paper in AsiaCrypt where uh, I looked at group signatures again, right, and so like both gave sort of like general results also applied to to group signatures. That's sort of like started this this question of, okay, can you do, instead of looking at, say, arithmetic circuits or Boolean circuits, can you define a language over pairings that sort of is natural to both for what cryptographers would want to build and, and also something that you can prove things about, right? So that came out of that. And, and then that was something uh, to, together with Hamid Sehai that I saw like, uh, did a lot of improvements on and really got the performance because that was sort of like a very heavy construction that had, you know, hundreds of, of group elements, right? And, and so, like, then we did boil it down to what is the core and, and, and the essence, right? Um, and there were a, a couple of, of related works. I also had some discussions with Brent Waters, so Brent Waters and, and Xavier Boyen also at the same time also realized that, you know, well, these kind of proofs sort of like naturally speak this, this group language. And they also have some uh, nice non-interactive knowledge proofs that they used in the context of group signatures. Do you still see um, use for this now that we have these more generic proving systems? Or do, do you think it's already a bit obsolete? What, what, what's your thought about so it? I, I think there are still applications of, of, of that. I think people are using it. Um, so I think there's a general question, right, when we talk about uh, zero-knowledge proofs, which is, are you talking about small statements or big statements, right? Because, you know, so so all these things about getting sublinear complexity and, and really squeezing out every piece of performance is something that makes sense when you have a big complex statement, right? Then you, you want to, to get get that, right? But if you have something which is small, right? Then, you know, it may not be that big a deal that you, you know, pay in a few extra group elements, right? And, and the nice thing about these proofs is that they are in, in the standard model, right? You don't have to make uh, assumptions about, you know, knowledge extractors and, and things like that. So I think there are people that appreciate that and, and think of, of these earlier proofs as so like being, being I mean, more more reliable or trustworthy uh, because they just use standard assumptions in, in, about pairings. So I know that we want to speak about kind of what led to the kind of one of your most famous works, the Graph 16 paper. Uh, but was there anything kind of in the lead up that you think listeners should know about to understand some context to how that came came to be? Yeah. So so I think I can think of, of two pieces of context that I think are, very, are interesting, right? So, so one is that there's been sort of two tracks of, of work. One is based on non-interactive proofs based on pairings. And another track is sort of like interactive proofs based on the discrete logarithm problem. And, and there's been some sort of like interplay in my mind about, you know, porting techniques from one side to the other and, and so forth, right? 
Um, so I think that is perhaps an interesting point. I think that another interesting point is I really like the paper I had at AsiaCrypt that sort of introduced these succinct pairing-based arguments to start with. Um, and I thought, thought of that as sort of like a big scientific breakthrough. Uh, it was actually rejected several times. And people didn't like it oh, quite no. as much. That's, uh, so, so there's a bit of an <laughs> interesting gossip, I guess, one could do about that. But I think, I mean, I actually personally, I think, Less of growth at 16, right? I mean, it's been picked a lot, uh, a lot of in, in the industry. It's had a lot of applications, right? But from a scientific perspective, right, you already had Pinocchio for like sort of like shaving, shaving off the group elements. And from a scientific perspective, I think the interesting thing was also like I also started thinking about lower bounds and you know how good is this? Is this optimal or or not, right? And actually, the title is so like on you know on on the size of non-interactive zero knowledge, right? And and of course, I think there's this distinction between what does a scientist find interesting in a paper, right? And what does an engineer find interesting uh, about a paper, right? And and those are somewhat distinct uh, notions, right? What you're sort of saying is like a lot of the pieces had been prepared in advance. And this was, would you say that this was just like the formalization in a way that was easier for an engineer to be able to use? Or were there advances in that work as well? So there was um, this nice line of work, right, by uh, Gennaro Gentry, Pano and Rykover 2013, and then Pinocchio by Pano Hall, uh, uh, Gentry and, and Rykov also in 2013, right, where they actually gave so like concrete uh, pairing-based uh, snarks, right, that were succinct. Um, and it was so like, you know, I was reading that and I wanted to understand it, right, and I want to optimize it and see if I could get something out more out of that, right. So that's so like the concrete background of, of, of why I, I did that. And they introduced some really nice things. So, and I think one thing there was a little back and forth discussion about that. Um, I was one of the reviewers of that paper, so I guess it's okay that I reveal my anonymity many years afterwards, right? And, ah. and maybe they, they thought of me as a reviewer too, the one that always gives these horrible comments, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but some of the discussion was that, so in, in this, uh, the first NARC I had proposed in, in uh, 2010, and also Helga Lippmann had uh, some ideas for more efficient uh, SNARKs, and, and those were... Uh, universal in the sense you could take any circuit, any arithmetic circuit, right? And then you could have the inputs and then you could prove things about that. And what what came up in the GGPR paper was the idea that, you know, well, if we fix the circuit, right, then we can actually do something more efficient, right? And they had this introduced the idea of, of quadratic span programs and also in the appendix they had a, the ideas of quadratic arithmetic programs, right? So there was a bit of a... a so like discussion back and forth, right? Are you comparing apples to oranges because this is not universal, right? This is just like for a fixed circuit, right? But of course you can have universal circuits and then you pay an overhead and right, and then you give it a proof. So, so there was a little bit of discussion back and forth and also a bit of confusion about that point, right? But I think in the end, it, it's it's been a super fruitful piece of work they had, right? I mean, they introduced the idea of quadratic uh, span program and quadratic um, arithmetic programs, right? And and I think that was sort of like a, a really good idea, right? Because they did get much better efficiency because they specialized to a specific circuit. I think this discussion around the universality is still happening, but maybe in a different level today with the introduction of, let's say, you have circuits, but you also have circuits that implement zero-knowledge virtual machines and all that. So it's still happening, but in a more complex way. So you were just describing the quadratic arithmetic programs. I guess these are sometimes re referred to as QAPs. Right, exactly. Yeah. Was this the predecessor? Like, was this the model that you kind of transformed or changed from? Or would you say you borrowed something from this research? So there, I think, I think basically I, I adopted that model, right? That's that's what I'm, okay. I'm building on as well. I think as, as we become better at understanding and building zero knowledge proofs, that's emerged this, this paradigm, right? That you saw like you can take an arithmetic circuit, you take general computation, you can arithmetize it, right? And you can describe it as a set of constraints and then you can build that into or convert that into a quadratic arithmetic program. And then you can prove things about 
quadratic arithmetic programs because, well, they're just polynomials and you can have polynomials in these secretic exponents, right? Um, so, so, so that's so like, I think on a very high level, uh, the idea, right? And, and the idea is essentially, it, it's uh, so like, um, goes back to this short simple lemma, right? That you can check polynomial identities by just picking a random point and evaluating that, right? And then for the idea for these snarks is that, well, you know, that random coin can be built into the common reference string. And since it is an exponent and nobody can compute discrete logs, then nobody knows what, what is this uh, point that you're evaluating in, right? So that prevents the proof from, from cheating. You just mentioned the common reference string. This was actually going to be my question. Is like, because I've always understood the paper as also transformative in terms of the trusted setup. And I'm wondering if this is where that link happens, where it's like using this sort of the the way you constructed the common reference string allowed for a different trusted setup or not? Like, this is kind of actually a question to you. So in the early literature on non-interactive uh, zero-knowledge proofs, right? I mean, there was a bit of this discussion. I mean, a common reference string sometimes meant a uniformly random string, right? And when you do non-interactive zero-knowledge proofs based on, on uh, trapdoor permutations, you just need that uniformly random string, right? And then, I mean, for, for these pairing-based snarks, you need some structure to the reference string. You basically need sort of ways to evaluate polynomials. So you need sort of powers of, of uh, some secret ex uh, value that you're evaluating these polynomials in, right? So, so it's really key to these trusted setups here that, that you have a, a, a particular type of structured common reference string, which does not look uniformly random at all, right? Because it has embedded some very specific powers, right? Um, and that also implies that you need somebody who constructs that trusted reference string because if you just pick a random string, you're not going to get something which has these random powers. Got it. And I guess then that also just like changed the way you did a trusted setup. Right. Like it, it altered what you needed to do in order to do it. Right, yeah. Um, but there were trusted setups before, or was this the first time that like a snark introduces it? So I guess there's always been a question of where do you get that common reference string, right? I mean, and mm. uh, and the question of why should you trust that that common reference string, right? So if it's a, a uniformly random reference string, though, you may try things as like, you know, I will get it from some common physical source. I'll use, look at the sun oh, yeah. variations of sunspots and things like that. And maybe that could be used that, right? Or maybe I could just run a hash function, right? And it produces some outputs that look sort of random, right? And maybe I can use that, right? I mean, and the alternative to that is, okay, if you actually need a structure, you could think of using multi-party computation to, to do that. I mean, I also had a, a work that I did with Rafael Ostrovsky where it was basically trying to sort of get something in between, right? So you say there are multiple parties that can contribute a common reference string, or, or um, in this case, it was uniformly random reference string, right? But you don't have to trust any of them, right? But it was a little simpler model. You don't have to go through a multi-party computation. It's just every party who wants to contribute, they can say, here's my common reference string, right? And then when you want to prove something non-interactive, you can just collect some of these common reference strings and say, uh, here's a proof with respect to this set of common reference string, right? And then the verify, if the verify mm. trust that, you know, enough of these uh, providers are honest, then you can believe the, the, the proof. But so at what point was that MPC model of a trusted setup introduced? That I don't actually know whether it's so like it, it. I think it's it's just been for me. It's always been folklore, right? That you know, well, if you need some some converter string that, and, and somebody has to to set it up somehow, right? Multi-party computation would be a natural way to do, it. do yeah. it. But actually, this is the question: is like, was that the first time that was formalized? Like, I, I'm just curious if there had been work before yeah. using MPC as a for a trusted setup, or if if it was the the Grat 16 paper so i don't think i want to take any credit for for the combination of, of common reference strings and, and multi-party computation i think it's never something i've really described in that step in my papers i've just said well you can use multi-party computation and then left other people to to actually figure out how they would want to do that understood 
Yeah, and I guess like you you can see that result, you know, in in all the snark papers, it's very neatly abstracted away. You you have yeah. this secret, mm. and then you have complete other papers and huge amounts of code to do the actual multi-party computation. It's it becomes quite complex. <laughs> this is something Kobe yeah. knows quite well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was he he's been our like you know our local MPC uh, trusted setup expert. <laughs> I have to do. I have had to do a bunch of that. I think, yeah. I think it speaks to so like one of the nice things of of this era, which is that that there's a lot of things that you really can compartmentalize into different disciplines, right? Mm. So 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 a lot of the work I've done has been discrete logarithm groups or pairings. Um, I'm not an expert on, on pairings and the underlying math of how you do that computation. Other people are experts in, in that, right? I'm, I wouldn't call, consider myself an expert in multi-party computation, but again, other people know that and they can sort of like build these common reference strings, right? And then, of course, there's all the implementation work. Again, I would not consider myself an expert of, you know, how should you take like a general piece of code and, and, and convert that into to a, a quadratic arithmetic program, right? But that's also something that, that people picked up. So I think it's actually really nice that you can sort of like have these different fields of expertise and you sort of like have some nice interfaces between they can all work together. Can we touch a bit on the Growth 16 paper yeah, yeah. itself? Um, I think that the Growth 16 paper has kind of a misleading presentation in the sense that it's very low key. It's on the size of pairing based, uh, you know, proof. It sounds, uh, yeah, it's, it's like, it sounds very uh, humble, right? But it's actually quite a big result. And that became something that most deployments use today. Did, did you expect it to be that way? Like, did you expect it to be? A big result? I did not, right? Uh, I think, and and the reason is that I'm thinking of this as as a scientist, not as an engineer. I think this as you know, there was so in some sense when it comes to pairing based snarks, I would you know I, I'm very happy with the paper I had in 2010 that first introduced this idea, right? And I thought <laughs> that also like a for me a, a, a big deal, right? Because it was something new, right? And then, you know, Pinocchio really did a really good job of like, you know, saying this is sort of like, you right. know, getting really close to efficient, right? And and I thought of this as an incremental piece of work that sort of like took some of the ideas in Pinocchio and, and cleaned them up and squeezed things a little more together. And that you know, gave you better efficiency and, and gave you more compact proofs. But I did not think of that as a, as a big scientific step. I saw that as a sort of like an incremental scientific step, right? And then I sort of like matched it up with the lower bounds because I also want to understand like, you know, are we getting close to the limit of, of what we can do? And it still haunts me this question of, you know, is there something one can do in type three pairings that has two group elements? And I just don't know that the, the answer to that question. Can, can you also say something about the intuition of how like the construction growth 16 is made? Because Maybe when you look at earlier papers like Pinocchio and like PJHR 13, it feels um, more departmentalized that you have here I'm proving knowledge, here I'm doing a check. But in Growth 16, everything is very much packed together and neatly organized. And, you know, in the paper, you obviously present the final construction that works really well. So can you give something about the intuition? Right. I mean, so actually, I think that is, I think you already explained some of the intuition, right? Because part of what gives you the better performance is, I mean, Pinocchio is more cleanly structured and saying, this is what we're checking here. And that's what we're checking here, right? Uh, and, and I think it turns out that a lot of these things you can actually squeeze together. You basically work with polynomials. A lot of this is sort of like engineering with polynomials and coming up with clever ways to sort of like get everything together, right? So it's, it's really about, you know, designing some, some, some polynomials where you sort of like check everything at once, right? What was the impact of the paper once it came out? Was Zcash the first team to implement it? Okay, so this is actually really funny. It's it's the fastest implementation I've ever seen, okay. right? <laughs> so so I, I I put I put Grass sixteen on on ePrint. Uh, it was in the evening. Um, I woke up the morning the next day, 
and I had an email from uh, Alessandro Kies and Madara Virdra, which said, we have implemented it, and these are the performance wow. <laughs> estimates that, that we have, right? So they really literally implemented it in a few hours, right? Wow. And I was like, you know, wow, that's amazing, right? And of course, the reason they could do that is because they already had an enormous amount of tooling they had built. So it was basically just, they just needed to change some constraints in the description of those constraints, right? And then everything just, so just showed that they had really an impressive tool chain for, for um, building zero knowledge proofs. Ah. So, so yeah, that was, uh, that was super impressive. But that implementation would have been still sort of like a, an academic implementation for testing, right? Like this was not industry right. grade. Yeah. So yeah. what, that's the Libsnark one. This is Libsnark. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And so what, like, what actually, I mean, at what point did you start to see it actually get used in production? And was there a lot of work that had to happen before that point? Or was it pretty quick for people to start using it? I think I think that went went pretty, pretty quick. And it's probably Zcash that's the, the first one that, that did that. Um I was not very involved in that process, right? I mean, I was just this lucky academic that, you know, it turns out that I was in the field that people were suddenly starting to get interested in and adopting it, right? So, I mean, in some sense, I'm I'm really the, the I think, probably the opposite of the typical advice is, you know, that as an academic, you have to do quite a lot of work to get people actually to be interested in your work and, and picking it up, right? And I was just like... I put out a paper, I, you know, I <laughs> put really lean back and now, you know, and then somebody else said, look, this is great. We'll pick that up and, and use it, right? Um, Did this work come out before the first Zcash? Sprout was the first one, right? So Zcash already had a different one. And I don't remember it was so like Pinocchio or it was some, some other version of, of sort of like similar com complexity, right? Mm. So it, it was it was a later update where they said, now we will switch and, and use uh, Growth 16, right? Um, so maybe sampling. Uh, yeah, they added yeah. it in sampling. Yeah. And, you know, and of course, I was so like very happy to see that, you know, that it was getting out there and being yeah. used and, and people liked uh, the construction. Yeah, by the way, it was also part of the kind of excuse to move to sapling to hide the the big bug they had right well. yeah so they had what was it a, a a group element too many in the common reference string that they should have not too had, many yeah. and too many yeah, okay. and too many <laughs> and too many yeah but so this that was potentially the first time i mean and we might be wrong here, but was at least at least the first kind of high-profile implementation. But after that, I mean, it really became the standard for the industry. Yeah, yeah. Even now, I know that like work continues to be done on incorporating new things, tagging it into things. I mean, I think there's languages like tell me if I'm wrong here, Kobe, but like languages like Circom, which are like very much around Grot 16, and like how to interact with that particular proving system. Yeah, exactly, and Circom and um... You you other huge deployments like Filecoin and it's it's very much widely used and it's implemented in pretty much every proving system implementations out there. So right, it's definitely very popular. And I think that makes sense, right? I mean, it's also a, a question of I think there's a lot of uh, cross contamination and, and help in in setting on a standard right and, and being on the same page and you can sort of get ideas from from each other's implementations right so I think that's something you see quite often in, in that space yeah and it's it's really also really helps that uh, that they've been for the most time extremely efficient compared to many other constructions so in resource constrained environments like the EVM it was very useful. To, to use growth 16 yeah. you you could do it in like hundreds of thousands of gas which is yeah. very reasonable i want to talk a little bit about what came after and some of the work that you would have continued on as mentioned we had mary on the show just a few weeks ago talking about the work that she had done with you on trusted setup stuff and then how that actually sort of opened up these ideas of universal snarks after you published this paper, what kind of track were you exploring? What kind of direction? Were you looking to add incrementally to this particular direction or were you looking at other problems? Right. So I had a paper with Mary the, the year after, mm -hmm. uh, which 
thought about can you add more stronger security properties to zero non-interactive zero knowledge proofs, right? And and so so we had a paper where we had uh, simulation extractable snarks. Uh, so again, based on pairings, it was again three group elements, right? But it gave you some some extra. Uh, security properties in, in terms of what what an attacker can do. So it's not malleable. You cannot just change it, right? Whereas cross sixteen is, is re-randomizable. So that was sort of one one piece of of work under the hood, right? So there were the the notions of quadratic span programs and and quadratic arithmetic programs that was dates back to GDPR uh, thirteen. But we've also sort of like along the way come up with square span programs and square arithmetic programs. Square uh, span uh, programs, that was an earlier paper I did had with uh, George Denesis and Markov Kohlweis and Cedric Fonet. Uh, so that was sort of like for Boolean circuits, right? And, and basically the idea is that, okay, so in a general span programs and arithmetic programs, you boil everything down to a couple of polynomials, well, they're multiplied, they get some other polynomial. And the idea here is that instead of having a multiplication of polynomials, you have a squaring of polynomials. And that means that some of the group elements, the exponents of those group elements becomes the same. You can check that and it sort of like puts an extra restriction of what you can do. So that's sort of like what prevents an attacker from in, in the paper I have with Mary from, you know, mauling the, the, the proof. That you have that that extra constraint, yeah. But eventually, it's actually not that restricting, right? Because you can quite naturally translate, um, let's say, the, the arithmetization or the, the work that you do in our quadratic arithmetic programs to square arithmetic right, programs, yeah. right? And so, like you, it's like a two x factor or something of that sort, or four x. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and I think I think that. Uh, Exactly what you do in the paper with Mary, right? The snarky signature. Yeah, yeah. So, so you change some some things and so like yeah, how you do it. But I mean, it, it really is a sort of like standard math trick, right? That you can sort of like translate a multiplication into a couple of squaring and some tractors and and so forth, right? So that's sort of like standard. And, and then it it depends a little on on the circuit, right, or whatever initial statement right. you have, whether that's expensive or it, it comes uh, comes comes cheap that you can do that transformation um maybe one one other thing about the paper with uh, mary so the title for it is snarky signatures so why signatures that's i think would be interesting to discuss yeah right yeah that that's a a, a, a good question right so this is this notion of, of signatures of knowledge, right? And this is something that uh, dates back all the way back to, to Schnorr signatures, right? That you can think, think about those as being, being signatures of knowledge. In some sense, they're the non-interactive proofs of, of knowledge. And it's like you're not just signing, but you're also in some sense proving that you know some underlying um, secret key. And, and that's sort of like the, the core idea, right? And, and this was essentially the same kind of thing we were trying to get to, right? It has the same properties as signatures of knowledge, but now it was pairing-based, not based on, on hash functions in the future mirror heuristics. So, so we thought that was an, an interesting connection to make, and, and that's sort of where, where it comes from. What were some of the other work that you were doing around this time? And, and we should know, like, Mary Maller was one of your PhD students, and also Jonathan Boodle, who's been on the study club, was also working with you at the time. Yeah. But yeah, what other work were you doing? So, so another direction that we have been exploring is, is getting, making interactive proofs more efficient, right? Um, and I think... At that time, so I had an ERC stranding grant that gave me a lot of freedom to, to do research. Another direction was really trying to say, okay, what is the best prover complexity we can get, right? So because once you get down to, to sublinear complexity, I mean, the verifiers can be potentially super efficient if, I mean, the verifier has to read the whole statement in principle, right? But if you have some encoding of, of the statement, then you can even have a, like a sublinear verified complexity, right? And, and communication complexity can also be really uh, small, right? Uh, and the remaining bottleneck is really on the prover side, right? I think that's what everybody struggles, struggles with that. It's, you know, it's expensive and, and it's expensive on 
many places in the, the pipeline you know, when you do the arithmetization and, and also when you do the, the proof itself, right? So, um, and whenever you do these kind of proofs based on cyclic groups, right, then you typically pay some exponentiations or something like that, right, to, to do the proofs. So, so one direction of, of research we looked into was, okay, right, what is really the best you could imagine from a prover perspective, right? The best you could, could hope for is, is, I think, is really getting down to something that was more or less the same as if you just compute directly from the witness you have and the statement you have, right? I mean, so can you get down to something that, you know, is, is close to that? And, and we had a paper which was using error correcting codes and then some very efficient uh, hash functions uh, that get, gave really a constant uh, overhead for the prover. And, and I think there's one thing I've, I've always struggled a little with, right? So I think in the old days of, of zero-knowledge proof, people would say polynomial time, right? That's efficient. You don't have to worry about, you know, is it group operations or is it something else, right? And I think it really matters. What is the metric by which you are measuring the performance, right? It, it really makes a difference if it's like, you know, is it you know bit operations? Is it field operations? Is it exponentiations or group multiplication all that has an impact on the performance right um, and there's a ton of papers that say well we can prove things in linear time for the prover right but what they mean is that it's linear number of field operations or linear number of group operations or something like that right and all of that is expensive right um, so what we got in this paper was that it was really a, a true constant, right? It was independent of the field size or the security parameter, right? So it, it really is, so you can do prove arithmetic circuit size applicability with a prover that takes the same number, does the same number of field operations, a linear number of field operations, right? So it really is a true constant overhead. It would compare to just having the witness and going through it and doing the computations. Um, so, so that also like a really nice theoretical. I mean, in, in that paper, the construction is is, is complex, right? And, and in practice, it would be you know a very large constant, right? But it was from a theoretical perspective, I think it was sort of like very satisfying to get that down to a, a true constant overhead for for the prover. Um, and we then had a, a follow up paper also where we looked at sort of like concretely if you wanted to do computation based on say tiny RAM, right? Then you know what would be the overhead. Uh, and there was actually a little bit more overhead because there you you sort of like need you don't do it in in a in a the, the field size is bigger than the the, the unit size of, of the elements you're operating on on in tiny RAM. But you know depending on on what that gap is, right, you can also get very close in, in performance. I want to kind of go back to this work that you know led to the universal snarks. Like I understand that you were very involved in that as it was kind of being produced, but it wasn't like, and, and stop me if I'm wrong here, but it wasn't really coming out of your lab. It wasn't necessarily like your initial work, but rather you were brought in on this work, right? Right, yeah. And this is yeah. the work that led to Sonics, and I guess one can say down the line led to Marlin and led to Planck. What was kind of exciting about that for you? And what was your, what was sort of your take and contribution? What did you kind of add to that? Right. Yeah. So. So that was. Yeah. It was an interesting way it, it came about. So. Uh, so Mary was my student. She was working with Microsoft at Microsoft. I think it was Microsoft that sponsored her her PhD. So. So she came back with this interesting problem. Right. I mean. Well. You know. Maybe you can. You know. Do something more uh, general about about the common reference strings. Maybe it, it can be uh, updated and and then. Things would be fine. Um, I don't remember if they did not have a construction or they had a very cumbersome construction anyway. But it was interesting because it was all like also taking me back to the 2010 snark, right? Because that snark was based on on monomials in the exponents and instead of having a, a more structured setup where you actually have polynomials. And it turns out that monomials you can re-randomize. So like I knew so like exactly the right thing, and I could dig back in in my memory and say, oh, there are some ideas here I can use to do that, right? So so it was actually something, and it really took me, I think, a long weekend or something like that to so like get get so like the maiden structure up up and running, right? And then trying to optimize again and and getting down to as few group elements as as possible. So, but um. 
ideas when you've like worked in a long time in a field, right? There's a lot of ideas running around in your brain, and sometimes you can sort of like go back in that pool and fish up, and it may be used in in a different context, right? So I think few people other than me had so like thought much about that because at that point you had got sixteen and so forth, right? And people probably just jump to that straight away rather than, than think back. But well, since I had that old paper, I also knew about, about that, right? And I could sort of like take those ideas back and, and use that. And and, and, and and they had exactly this advantage, right, that it was universal, right, in terms of the circuit you could use as, as opposed to um, to being specific to a, to a circuit, right? So it also sort of like ties back, back that loop. Just to touch, but I think that we talked about it with Mary, that that work specifically was not practical to use, right? Because it was quadratic in the size of the reference string, right? Right, yeah, yeah. So the, the first paper, right, it was... So basically, yeah, you have the universal common reference string. You have to construct this specific common reference string, right? And there was sort of like a matrix multiplication in, in the exponents that you had to do. I think that was expensive. Right. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to, to move to definitive because there's also some interesting work there. Mm. Yeah, let's do it. So you're currently the Director of Research and Formal Security at Definity. Talk to us a little bit about that move. And do you get to do ZK stuff at Definity? That's my real question. <laughs> right, yeah. So the move was basically, you know, I, I thought it would be exciting to do something else. Um, I had so like just wrapped up a, a, a big grant uh, and uh, my students were graduating. So it was also a place where I could so like do a natural move without harming anybody in, in, in the process. I joined Definity. Uh, I knew uh, Jan Kamenisch from, from before. Um, and my PhD student, Andrea Chirudi, had also just joined Definity. So it was also like that through him that the con connection was uh, established. Uh, and as uh, I think all the academics that have joined Definity, right, you sort of like start out with, you know, taking a leave of absence from the university. So you can always come back later on if it doesn't work out. And, but, you know, I think we've all stayed at Definity. <laughs> so, so generally it works out pretty well. So what kind of what kind of work do you do? Do you get to do ZK stuff? I guess that's the real question. Yeah. So so I have not actually done that much work on zero knowledge in uh, Definity. So, so one piece of work I did was designing our non-interactive distributed key generation protocol. We have a, a sharded blockchain, right? So so there's a, a bunch of shards, or we call them subnets, right, where you have nodes and they, they have a, a, a secret key, right? And, and they do threshold signatures on behalf of the shard whenever something is updated about the state. So you can sort of like just verify that signature and see that, that it's the right thing you have. Um, and the question is, okay, when you have a new node that has been replaced or something like that, right? Um, or also maybe for proactive security, you want to update so like those shares that the servers hold one, once in a while. So, so there we use uh, a non-interactive distributed key generation protocol. Um, and it's nice that it's non-interactive. It so like makes the logic easier be behind uh, uh, the process, right? So the idea is that you have a uh, a share, so like that describes how the, the secret for this uh, threshold signature that we're using. And you want to, to be able to, so like each node has share of, of that secret, right? They want to contribute uh, a resharing of, of that, that secret, right? So, so a new set of nodes, maybe the old set of nodes, or maybe set where some of the nodes have been replaced can so like pick up and get a new refreshed share of, of the secret key. And there's a bit of zero knowledge proof, proofs in, in that. There's also so, so a lot of optimization again. So it's so like a multi-encryption uh, scheme that sort of like encrypts multiple parties at the same time and you still want to have chosen cipher text attack security so there's a lot of thinking going into that as well um, and zero knowledge proofs are used to basically prove that they are doing the right thing in in, in that op operation and and it, it is a snark it's sort of like but it's a hand tailored snark to this specific problem right so it's sort of like optimized for exactly this this use case right so it's uh Kind of thing again because of my background, it was so like you had to put a little in. for me to do that, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so I was happy to to get uh, that that into the the protocol. I have a question, Kobe. This because you just did some DKG work as well. Is it related? Do you see any sort of similarities in this? So I think that maybe there are some 
overlapping motivations mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that you want this non-interactivity, which is really useful and it simplifies handling a lot of failure cases and parties can go offline, online, and it's, it's really nice to have this verifiable encryption part. But um, what I think is really interesting about Jens's work here is that it's done for field elements, which, you know, you had some prior works around that with Fuchstern and others, but uh, this one really pushed the boundaries in optimizing it. And the work, for example, that uh, Mary and I've been doing with the group back then was for group elements. So in some sense, you, you are very strongly then deciding what kind of signature schemes you can use. So with field elements, you can still use ECDSA signatures and uh, Schnorr signatures, but with group elements, you are now restricted maybe to producing, uh, you know, random beacons or some new signature scheme like the one that we had in that paper. So uh, one of the most recent work you published was around this asynchronous CCDSA signing service. What can you share about it? Yeah, uh, so, so there's been some interesting questions there. So this is work with, with Victor Shoup, uh, who's also working at Definity, and he's sort of like the lead on, on this project. I'm sort of like have been helping him, him in that. So the motivation is that we want to uh, integrate the internet computer with Bitcoin. So basically you can sort of like send Bitcoin to, to an address on the Bitcoin network, it gets picked up by the internet computer, you can do things with it on the internet computer, and maybe later on you want to send Bitcoin to somebody else, and the internet computer can sort of send Bitcoin directly on, on the Bitcoin network. So we're very excited about that. Um, so Definity is, is the foundation that's building the internet computer, right? And the internet computer is a, a decentralized um, blockchain. The idea is that people can use the internet computer to... Um, to put build smart contracts applications on the internet computer, that should be a very easy process. It should be very performant. It is super performant, right? And it also has on-chain web, so you can sort of like serve web directly from the blockchain or from the smart contracts. So that's something we're also very excited about. Got it. And bringing it back to what you just described. So you're talking about bringing Bitcoin into this environment. Exactly, right? So, so the idea is that you can send Bitcoin to an address that's all like is accessible by the internet computer. Uh, so every smart contract, so so you have key duration with respect to ECDSA uh, signatures that's the BIP32 standard, right? So you can actually every smart contract from for you for every smart contract you can derive a Bitcoin address on the internet computer. And if you send Bitcoin to that one and tell the internet computer, hey, I sent some Bitcoin, right? Then the internet computer can pick up that Bitcoin and may later on send Bitcoin again to, to different addresses on the Bitcoin network. And then on the internet computer, you can imagine then having wrapped Bitcoin and, and basically you could build DEXs and, and things like that for uh, uh, using using Bitcoin. So, so I think it's very exciting integration, right? Because you can basically build smart contracts now on the internet computer that has all the sort of like the in nice interfaces on the internet computer, the web and, and so forth, right? That and, and you can use those applications to send and, and receive Bitcoin. In this work, this was uh, one of the first work that we have in ECDSA signing, which works in an asynchronous model. So what, what's what's like unique and important about that? Yeah, so so I think there's been a lot of interest in, in threshold easy DSA signatures, and exactly because then you can do Bitcoin transactions and other types of uh, transactions. Uh, we specifically opted for the asynchronous model because we think that's the most realistic model. I mean, that is the internet, and things can get lost and not arrive at uh, the destination, right? So we think that's sort of like the right conceptual model. Um, and so so there's sort of like sort of going. Stepping back in, in the process, right? We wanted to do an integration with Bitcoin. For that, we wanted to be able to threshold sign easy DSA signatures. And then stepping back, we started looking at sort of like the protocols for a threshold easy DSA. And, and there's actually quite a lot of work that had not been done. So, so one thing we published at Eurocrypt this year was a security analysis of easy DSA itself, right? To just give a see, look at those properties that people have been used, right? So one property, for instance, is that 
people have used is you can sort of like there's a, a random element you first compute and then you sort of like do some other steps in uh, the, the ECDSA signing process. And, and people have suggested, well, instead of computing that element after you see the message, why don't you pre-compute that, right? And just make it public for right. everybody and then you can use that, okay? But that's not actually been analyzed in very <laughs> carefully in, in the literature, right? So, so the people using these ideas that have not been analyzed that, that carefully. I mean, there's another work that sort of analyzes that. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and then there were, we had some ideas there as well. So you may actually take that public element, but if you re-randomize before you use it with a message, then mm -hmm. you actually get stronger security guarantees. I think there was some nice. Some, some nice analysis going all the way back to, to the ECDSA that we encountered in that process. Very cool. I think we're pretty much at the end of the interview, but is there anything that people should look out for, something like future work that they, they should keep their eyes open for? Uh, that, then I guess I mean, we have a lot of things going on at Definity <laughs> for the internet computer, right? So we're also using, looking into sort of like uh, advanced DAOs uh, so then that will allow applications to do tokenization and have decentralized governance and you can on-chain vote and decide on upgrades to the protocol and so forth. So there's a lot of like really nice functionality work working on. Uh, so like more up my alley is perhaps so like the, the crypto-specific things, right? So, so, so some things that we're interested in looking into the future is sort of multi-party computation for confidentiality of, of data and, and post-quantum security. Cool. So we look out for ROT23, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> ROT23. <Yeah. laughs> Fine. <laughs> I'm sorry. <All> right. <laughs> Jens, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us your journey, talking about some of these really important works in our space. And uh, yeah, I'm very excited to see what's next. Yeah, thank you. And, and, and thank you, Kofi. It's been a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I want to say a big thank you to the Zero Knowledge Podcast production team, Henrik, Tanya, and Chris, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.